0: We're in John chapter 6, I want to begin, thank you Phil, I want to pick this up in verse 14 um, and read to you part of this passage, it says, I'm going to read to you out of the New American Standard, and this is in response to the feeding of the 5,000, it says therefore, now whenever you read the word therefore in the Bible, you have to ask the question, why is that word therefore, right? In other words, in response to the people receiving the bread and the fish, it says the people saw the sign, one of the seven signs that we do see here in the book of John, which Jesus had performed, and they said, this truly is the prophet who has come into the world. We looked at that last week, referring to the prophet uh, that is prophesied about in Deuteronomy chapter 18. It was understood at that time that that prophet that Moses prophesied about would in fact be the Messiah. And so Jesus, aware that they intended to come and to take him by force, to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. Now when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, and after getting into the boat, they started to cross the sea to Capernaum. And it had already become dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. In addition, the sea began uh, getting rough because a strong wind was blowing. Then when they had rowed about 25 or 30 stadia, let's just call it three to four miles, because that's what it says in the New King James. They saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. That sounds like an understatement, doesn't it? But he said to them, it is I. The literal translation, he said to them, I am. We'll get to that this morning. Do not be afraid. So they were willing to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land which they which they were going. I'm going to read on, but I will start in verse 22 next week. The next day the crowd that stood on the other side of the sea saw that there was no other small boat except one. And that Jesus had not gotten into the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had departed alone. Other small boats came from Tiberias, near to the place where they ate the bread after the Lord had given thanks. And so when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into a small boat and they came to Capernaum looking for Jesus. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, When did you get here? And Jesus will respond. Again, we will look at that next week. But Father, we pray that you would speak to our hearts this morning concerning this passage, that you would grant us understanding, that you would illuminate our minds and our hearts by your Holy Spirit, that we may receive from you that which you have for each of us this morning. We ask these things in Jesus' name, And all God's people said, amen. I love this passage. It's not found in the book of Luke, which is interesting. It is found in the book of Matthew, chapter 14, verses uh, 22 through 33. And in Mark, chapter 6, verse 45 through 52. If you... I've read those passages and I'm sure that we're all familiar with the story of Jesus walking on the water. You'll probably remember that what we just read is rather different and it is rather brief and it is rather uh, narrowly focused compared to the full story because when Jesus walks on the water, Mark tells us that he was up in the mountains watching them struggle going across the sea. Now, it's dark. It's dark. Jesus is up in the mountain. Now, the the disciples may have had a lantern, but it would have been hard to follow that boat with just your eye, you know? So I think there's something supernatural going on. Obviously, because all of a sudden, Jesus decides he's going to join his crew. And of all things, he starts walking on the water. You remember what Peter responded or how Peter responded? It tells us here in John, they're all afraid, all right? Now, if I were out there and <clears throat> the wind's blowing, and if you've, you probably have heard this about this, the Sea of Galilee, is that it's kind of surrounded by, by mountain, kind of a mountainous region, um, but you have a, this low-lying area where the sea actually sits in, the lake. Um, and because of that, it, it's like a wind tunnel. It, it draws all kinds of wind in there. And so uh, you have this uh, uh, geographic location where all of a sudden it'll be calm one moment, and all of a sudden the wind comes up and the seas get very rough. And Mark even talks about how they were straining at the oars. And, and they, they were basically rowing all night, not getting too far. Incidentally, there's also a story about them crossing the Sea of Galilee in Mark chapter 4. But if you read it carefully, it's a different account. Peter, and I love this about Peter. Lord, he says in Matthew, Lord, if it's you, bid me come to you. Allow me to come to you. If it's you, allow me to come to you. Now, think about the faith that was involved in that. Because what did Jesus say? He just says, come. Now, I love this. I wasn't really going to go into this too much, but I, I just love this story. When Peter stepped out of the boat, did he step out one foot at a time? Both feet at a time? One toe at a time? You know, how would have you stepped out of the boat? Does it matter? I don't think it, I mean, it's interesting in some respects, and we're not told, and, that's, and I'll probably get around to asking Peter that someday when we're, when we're in heaven. The fact is, he got out of the boat. Matthew tells us that he looks around and he starts looking at the wind and hearing the wind and seeing the waves and <clears throat> all of that, and, um, he becomes fearful and he starts to sink, right? What does he do? I will, we just sang it. I will call upon your name. It was by design. Boy, anyway. I will call upon your name. And he called upon the name of the Lord, and the Lord saved him and lifted him up, and the two of them walked back to the boat. And once they got in the boat they immediately were on the other side. And the wind calmed, by the way. Why didn't John include that? Why didn't John tell that story that way? Now, I believe that John was written last. Mark was probably written first. But John, you have to remember, he tells a story in such a way using the actual events that actually happened. These are true stories, right? They're not make-believe. He's using these actual events that actually happened as symbols and metaphors to teach us something even greater. And he does not intend to teach us like a 21st century textbook. Because one of the first things he's, he's, that we read here is that evening came. Some of the translations it, it, it says evening came. Some of the translations says it's darkness. Darkness, whenever John talks about darkness, uh, he, he's not only just talking about the setting of the event that is happening, but he's speaking theologically as well. That all of a sudden, the disciples are sent across the the lake in darkness. Now, you have to wonder what they were thinking. At least I do. Aside from Peter, one foot, two feet, one toe, three You know, you have to wonder what they were thinking as they were crossing the sea. First of all, Jesus says, go to the other side. Essentially, I'll meet you there. You probably said more than that, but anyway, I'm being brief here. Because the crowd was attempting to force Jesus to make him king. Isn't that what part of the Old Testament prophesied about regarding the Messiah? Yes, it was. Did this not seem like a great opportunity to seize the moment? To grab a hold of the momentum? By the time we, we get into, chap, finish up chapter 6, we're going to see that momentum start to dwindle drastically. But wouldn't it have been an opportune time for the Messiah to receive his kingship? Were the disciples wondering about that as they rowed across the sea? Were they talking amongst themselves about where was Jesus at with this? And by the way, why is he not in the boat with us? Remember the last time we crossed the sea and he was asleep in the back of the boat and, and, and we thought we were going to perish? Mark 4. And so what you have going on here is that these disciples of his are in a bit of darkness because their understanding of what Jesus is doing is not fully illuminated. Kind of like you and I. Really. Kind of like you and I. I don't, and we want to be careful with the use of metaphors, and Jesus talks about, you know, even in the first chapter of the book of John, it talks about Jesus being the light of the world. One of his I am statements, he will talk about himself being the light of the world. Sometimes I wish he would turn up the light a little bit, don't you? yeah I, I remember when I come in And the if, if we're the first in on Sunday morning, um, a lot of times I won't even bother to turn the lights on at least because I, I can see okay, I can see well. I kind of like it nice and quiet and dim for a while. And we do you know we want to turn the lights on before, everybody it gets here of course. and one guy used to come in it was like he would, it was almost like it was just a disruption he, he doesn't go anywhere so I can share this. But it was like almost like a disruption of my my peaceful moment before the, the calm before the storm. You know, we'd walk in and start flipping on lights. You know, why is all the lights off? I'm like, why don't you leave me alone? But anyway, uh, you know, but, but, but I think we, we dwell in, in, in a place where we are only partially illumined in understanding the will of God. And... I, I think if we truly understood the will of God for our lives and understood the direction that we are going in and what it is that God is attempting to do in all assets and all aspects and all facets of our life, we'd probably mess it up. Because that's just how we are. Because a lot of us want to help. Let's help God as if he needs it. Now we, do we participate? Do, yes, we do. We do participate. Do you have to find, do you have to find and establish that fine line on your own? Yes, you do. because it's different for all of us, is it not? But they're in a place of trying to wrestle through these things, and it, it tells us that all of a sudden, Jesus comes to them. And he's walking on the water. It says that it, uh, they got into a boat. They started to cross the Sea of Capernaum. It got dark. It became dark. It tells us in verse 17. Jesus had not yet come to them. In addition, the sea began getting rough and because a strong wind was blowing. It's less than desirable conditions. Kind of like when you fly in turbulence and you're convinced the plane is going to fall apart. And I remember one time we took a trip, and it was like we bounced the entire time on the way. And it was like, I, just, I hated the flight. You know, I don't like to fly anyway. But, you know, I, I remember we flew into a thunderstorm outside of Dallas, or we were in over Greenwood, Mississippi. And I was convinced because the plane did this. I watched it twist, right? I'm sitting in the back. They're made to do that, apparently. But I'm thinking, I'm gonna die over Greenwood, Mississippi, of all places. Um, and they're on a boat, and the, boat, the sea was rough. I've been out at, outside the San Francisco gate, uh, deep sea fishing, and that's an, when the rough, sea is rough there, that's an interesting trip. Um, And everybody's getting seasick, and I'm just eating Dramamine like they're Skittles, you know. But I stayed, I didn't get sick because of it. But they don't have a big engine pushing that boat across the water. They're based on, they're operating on the oars. They're rowing the boat across the sea. And so the going is tough. The going is difficult. The going is dark. There's a lack of understanding and they are being brought. The other gospel accounts essentially affirm this. They're being brought to the point of exhaustion. Rowing and not really getting very far. And all of a sudden, they're they're out there rowing away and all of a sudden there's this figure and it's heading toward them. And I imagine the first person who saw it, they thought, oh, I'm seeing things. I'm just tired, right? They probably went through all the 12 baskets of the bread that they had gathered, you know, after the feeding of the 5,000. And they all begin to get afraid. Now, isn't that ironic that they see Jesus, they don't know it's him yet, but they see him coming near the boat, and they're afraid? Is everything that is happening in this little passage God ordained? And they're afraid over something that is God ordained. Do, do you understand? You know, when you think about how patient God must be with each and every one of us. And how long suffering. Because he is so incredibly Loving. And they're afraid and they're, free, they're starting to freak out. And he says to them, it is I, do not be afraid. And so they were willing to take, notice they were willing to take him into the boat. That word willing in the Greek refers to having a very strong desire. They needed the captain of their ship. They were willing to take him into the boat and immediately the boat was at the land of which they were going. The journey was over. Just when they got to the good part, actually. So why did John write this story the way that he did? Other than the Holy Spirit inspired him to do so, and we know that, right? Why did he leave out the part about Peter walking on the water and then falling into the drink? I mean, he had to tell us about the foot race, didn't he? Between him and Peter as they ran to the empty tomb and that that John ran on ahead. Just wanted to let us all know he was faster than Peter. Why didn't he tell us about Peter? Well, you could say the other two gospels talked about it, but that's not really, I think, the good answer. What is going on here is that we are being set up. Remember, this is how John writes. We are being set up by the feeding of the 5,000, then the walking on the water for the first of seven great I am statements. Where Jesus will have this conversation, we'll look at part of it next week, where he tells them that he says, I'm going to quote him, I am the bread of life. So he's walking on the water after feeding 5,000. The feeding of the 5,000 is symbolic to a degree of how the Lord cared for his people Israel when they were in the wilderness because it was in the wilderness that he fed the 5,000. And he fed them manna, what, for 40 years. So he, he's playing on this idea. Who provided manna to Israel? The Lord God did. Yahweh did. Jesus is doing the very same act that Yahweh did in the wilderness because, in fact, he is Yahweh as well. He's affirming his deity in his acts. And then he walks on the water. Now, how many people here have ever walked on water? How many people think they can't? All right, never mind. Anyway. Do you realize that that is also a symbolic expression for them to think back toward the Exodus? Particularly in the crossing of the Red Sea. Now, the Red Sea was parted, okay? I understand that. But it was still a crossing of the sea, in this case, Jesus went upset, and he just walks across the surface going, could you imagine what that must have looked like? I hope they have that on video. You know, going up and over the waves and, and, and just, just walking on the water very calmly and probably very quickly. But it's another expression of God's work of deliverance. Who parted the Red Sea? Yahweh. Yahweh by his power, working through his servant Moses. So, Jesus here is setting us up, again, for another proclamation of his deity. In verse 20, he tells them to not be afraid. Okay, think back on all the, what's called a theophany. Theophany. What is a theophany? A theophany is what I believe. A theophany is a physical manifestation of the Lord God in the Old Testament. Joshua had one. Isaiah had one. Others had one. Uh, Gideon, for example. I believe it's a pre-incarnate appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. And what, is, what are some of the characteristics of theophanies in the Old Testament? First of all, the people are scared out of their wits. Moses had at the burning bush. He was scared to death. God tells him to not be afraid. Joshua was a bit bolder. He goes up to the Lord and says, are you for us or for our enemies? Because he didn't know who he was talking about, of course. And I thought it was interesting because... The Lord tells him to do what? Take off your sandals because you're on holy ground. The same thing he told to his mentor, Moses. There's always this, this initial response of humans when they are encountering the Lord that they're fearing and they're afraid that they're going to Abraham even. They're afraid that they're going to see God and it's going to kill them. No man can see God any time. Remember Moses up on the on, on Mount Sinai. The Lord descends down and declares his glory, puts him in the cleft of the rock, and basically covers him over and shields him from the passing glory of the Lord. There's always that fear, and then there's always that encouragement. That comforting word, to fear not. And then in these theophanies of the Old Testament, there's always the identification of who the person is. In this passage, it's no less than what we saw in some of those Old Testament passages. Because Jesus, when he sees them, he says, it is I. Now, I went and looked it up in Mark. I looked it up in Matthew. Same word in the English. I looked it up in the Greek. It is I is probably not the best translation of what was written in the Greek. The actual words in the Greek are the Greek words ego, E-G-O e-m. Sorry e i m i I believe. I said, my notes. I got to do it's so look. Uh, E-I-M-I. Yes. Okay. The literal translation, and it's hard to translate those two Greek words from Greek into English, are the words I am. So literally what Jesus is saying to them, in verse 20, he says, I am, do not be afraid. That's what he is literally saying. Now, now, For example, because he's on the front row, I'd rather pick on you than my wife. Yes, I would say, "Are you Philliaates?" And you "No, I am." OK, you could say, "I am. Are you Phil Yates? And you would say, "I am." OK. Now that would be a proper response now. It would actually be a proper response then affirming. The identity. Now, there are some who believe, and, and, and it's a mixed bag when you start dealing with, with some Jewish thinking in um, first century or even before the first century, uh, where the Jews would not say, I am, without saying, I am Phil Yates, right? Uh, because they did not want to use the phrase, I am. Why is that phrase so important? Let's turn to Exodus 3 really quick. I'll go with this guy. It's the story of the burning bush that I, I, I referred to briefly earlier. And I've show, I believe I've showed this to you guys before, but I, I think it's good just to go back and look at it again. Moses is out there taking care of his father-in-law's sheep. Verse 1, it says he's tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. Okay, um, And it says, And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, but the bush was not consumed. Now, that would be worth a side trip. I guess anything in the desert is worth a side trip, right? So Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight. Why does the bush not burn? And so when the Lord, notice that's capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, you could translate it. So when Yahweh saw that he came to turn aside and look, God called to him in the midst of the books and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not uh, draw near this place. Take off your sandals for the place in which you stand is holy ground. Moreover, he said, I am the God of your father, God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look upon God. So in verse 6, who, who is this? voice identifying himself as Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's identifying himself as Yahweh. And then it says, And the Lord said, I've surely seen the impression of my people who are in Egypt and heard their cry because of their taskmasters, and I know their sorrows. All right? So he, he's, he's getting ready to commission him to go and do the work of delivering. Uh, and so he says, Verse 10, come now, therefore, and I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people and uh, the children of Israel out of Egypt. And then Moses says to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh, that I should bring out the children of Israel, uh, of Israel out of Egypt? And he said, I will certainly be with you. And this is the sign that, you, uh, that I have sent you, that when I brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. And then Moses said to God, Indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and I say to them, the God of your fathers have sent me to you, and they say to me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. So Moses said, or so. Uh, moreover, God said to Moses, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, Yahweh, God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Isaac and Jacob has sent me to you. So he identifies himself to Moses at the burning bush with the name I am. A present tense name. That really involves all tenses. It's it's a fascinating construction in the Hebrew. Translated ego emi in the Septuagint. Which we see in the Greek, "echo emi, translated most of the time as I am. Could it be? Here's my million dollar question for you. Remember when I asked at the very beginning and then I didn't even answer the question? Why did John write this the way that he wrote this? Why didn't he talk about Peter? Why didn't he go into more details? It's a fascinating story. I love the story of him walking on the water. Especially if he wanted to kind of bag on Peter and talk about how Peter got all wet. Because... In his writing, in the inspiration of his writing, he's setting us up for another discourse. The first of the seven I am statements, whereby Jesus will not only say, I am, referring to his deity, but he expands upon that idea, in this case, I am the bread of life. He's getting us, the reader, ready to absorb that, ready to understand that. So here we have Jesus walking on the water. The disciples are in darkness. He's confirming yet again to them who he is. Again, they were probably wondering why he didn't jump on the opportunity to become king. But then what he is doing here is he is revealing something greater Than their earthly expectations. They wanted a king. And yes in fact he will be the king. And in fact is the king. But one day the kingdom of God will be here in its fullness. But it's on his timing. Based on his plans. Based on his purposes. That he will fulfill. He's revealing something than their greater earthly expectations and that's how I think, I think at times I think at times that we, we set the bar too low for God. Good. Some of you I can see it on your face as you're thinking. Maybe we set the bar too low because of our earthly expectations. And then when, when the Lord does not meet those low expectations, we become disappointed. But he has something so much more wonderful in mind. Notice this is this is the fifth sign in the book of John, walking on the water. I'll answer this, in, go and re, I want to encourage you to read the rest of this chapter this week. And I will answer this a bit, more fully next week. But notice that this sign is only for his disciples. Remember when I talked about signs last week? Signs and wonders? Signs are given to help us and encourage us to to take a greater step of faith toward the Lord. But signs can also be those things that people see and yet refuse to believe. And I'm convinced, as it is, that when God gives us light, how we respond to that light eventually determines how much light God continues to give us. Now, his grace is greater than all our sin and all of our doubt. And here, you know, we don't know. It does not say. It does, again, John using the theme of darkness, of talking about, uh, which he does a few times in the book of John. He specifically mentions that when Judas leaves the upper room to go um, betray him, he talks about Judas going out into darkness. But sometimes the signs are given for those who have already believed to further increase their faith. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians where he talks about that It talks about tongues being a sign to those who believe, but also it is a sign to those who do not believe. But this sign he reserves, and it must have been fascinating to watch this. I would have been scared. You would have been scared, probably. Well, maybe not. Anyway, I would have been afraid. It's not something that you see every day. But it had a purpose, and I think, again, if he's the master of the sea, if he's the master of time and space, and as he gets in the boat, all of a sudden they're on the other side, if he has that incredible amount of control, is the moments prior to that walking on the water, while they're rowing across, are they any less holy? Are they any less ordained? Are, there any, are they any less purposeful? in the mind and plan of God. It's like when Philip, earlier in this chapter, when Jesus sought to test Philip, I talked about this, what, two weeks ago? And and I believe it was God's intention, the Lord's intention, to push Philip a little bit further in his faith. No doubt it pushed Peter. Peter. But for goodness sake, at least he got out of the boat. And so if, if, if he is the master of the seas, if he's the master of the elements where he can take f- five loaves of bread and two fish and feed 5,000 people, is he not the master of every other thing as well? So that thing that you were going through, is he not overseeing that? Now, I know there are times, and I've been there, praying for that miracle. Can we get over this so we can get to the happy ending? And why wouldn't we? conversations in the boat prior to them seeing Jesus, what it was they were talking about. Of course, we're not told. I'm speculating here. But did not the disciples look back on that time and maybe saw their lack of faith? I'm speculating. You know that. It doesn't say it in the Scripture. But I'm sure they weren't just rowing and complaining. They were probably complaining and rowing. but, But it might have felt like a letdown. Here you go. You bring us out to the east side. I don't like the east side of the sea anyway. It's filled with a bunch of Gentiles. It's mountainous. It's hot. There's no, there's no uh, Burger Kings. There's no nothing. There's no place to go buy food. You feed us and then finally we get to go back to Capernaum. They want to make you king. You don't want to do it. What are we doing here? Those are legitimate questions, I think, that we ask ourselves and others time and time again. And yet, often it is that we just have to wait for the Lord to come and to call us out upon the water and wait for the moment. And in the meantime, sometimes it's like walking through the theological place of eternal punishment. that he comes and meets us on the water. He comes and he brings us to the shore. Jesus, I believe, is even acknowledging the faithfulness that his disciples do have and doing this next sign for them. Matthew 25, 29 tells us, for to everyone who has, more will be given and he will have abundance, but to him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. They willingly received him. With great desire, they received him into the boat. And then immediately, they achieved their goal of getting across the lake. In other words, the fullness of the divine intervention upon their lives again the master of the sea the master of the elements the one who was the bread of life demonstrating to us not only in words because i believe that i am statement is a is a test, testament not all commentators agree on this but as i believe It's a testament Here in this passage, again, that Jesus is affirming to us that he is, in fact, Yahweh. That he's in charge. That he can walk on the water because he created it. That he can divide five loaves and two fish to feed 5,000 because he created those elements. So if you know him and you find yourself in the sea, rowing contrary, as one of the other gospels said, to, to uh, the wind and the waves, knowing that he's still in charge and that he will never leave you, nor will he forsake you. Amen.